the year, each of those confirmands are assigned um, a prayer partner that simply does just that, prays for them um, and gives them words of encouragement, cards. They don't know who that prayer partner is uh, until Thursday. And this year was actually kind of special because my wife and I got to serve um, as a prayer partner, not for one of our confirmands, but for an eighth grader in our school, Jacob Hankey, whose dad is the pastor at Mount Calvary in Brentwood. So I was very uh, honored to be able to do that. And uh, Jacob's dad, Will, was actually uh, a pastor in Orange right out of the seminary at my home church. So he knew me when I was in eighth grade. And now I've got the joy of getting to know his son when he's in eighth grade. And his confirmation is actually about right now. So I told him, unfortunately, I was not going to be able to be there, but I at least uh, mentioned his name on the, on the radio. So uh, congratulations, uh, Jacob, on that confirmation. Um, and certainly congratulations to all our, our confirmands. Um, who confirm their baptismal faith. Now, to dive into the Bible study, we're continuing our study of Luke, and today we're looking at Luke chapter 16. And I, I kind of had to chuckle because Luke 15 is so well-known and well-loved and for good reason, right? The lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son, all kind of parables that at the end make you feel real good about the, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, how God seeks us out. Um, and so I had to laugh that uh, I missed it by a week because Luke 16 contains parables, yes, but parables that I would say argue are much uh, more difficult for us to hear and certainly perhaps even more difficult for us to understand. And it starts with the parable um, of the dishonest manager. And I'm going to say from the offing, this seems to be almost a backwards parable or maybe even an ironic parable because it looks at first glance as if the, the individual in the parable is praised, is commended for not righteously living, but for their dishonesty, for their unrighteousness. Um, and it, it's a parable that does challenge us a little bit. But we're going to start at verse six, or 16, verse 1, where Jesus uh, says to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought against him that this man was wasting his possessions. Uh, and one of the interesting things here about that word wasting in the, in the case that's in, in the Greek um, and I checked in several different commentaries and with people who are smarter than I, and, and the verb here really means an intentional wasting. This was not from um, foolishness in terms of like stupidity. No, he knew what he was doing. He was intentionally, uh, and even maybe more than wasting, kind of stealing from his, uh, uh, from his rich ruler. And so this manager, this steward, who had um, basically access and means to his his master's possession, is caught, um, not by the steward, notice, but by someone reporting it to the steward, is caught kind of cooking the books. You know? And so the, the steward or the manager, um, or sorry, the rich man calls to the steward and says to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. Uh, here we have uh, was almost like an IRS audit, right? This rich man realizes what's been going on under his nose and says, I, I need to see the books. I need to see you make um, justification for this. And we see from the offing that this steward, this manager, knows he, he can't. He knows he's caught. He knows that the gig is up, so to speak. And so he says to himself, and this is interesting because in Luke, you see this happen several different times. Just last week in the parable of the prodigal son, what does the prodigal son do while he's in the, uh, the pigsty? Yeah, he talks to himself, like you said, bud. It's a little bit of a soliloquy. There we go. Uh, you know, he, he's not saying this out loud, but he's saying this internally. He's saying to himself, um, just like the prodigal son said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. And so this dishonest manager kind of weighs his options, realizing he, he's too weak, maybe he has a bad back, maybe he's older, maybe he's just um, not physically able to join the humble labor workforce, the blue-collar workforce. But he also is a prideful man, a proud man, and he's too ashamed to beg. And so then notice right away, he says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So everything that follows this is for a purpose. And what is that purpose? 
so that when I am removed from management, I have a place to go. And you notice something here. What is on this manager's mind? If, let's just take the, the concept of him being dishonest, wasting, essentially stealing from his manager. Um, what's on his mind even after he gets caught? What's he thinking about? Self, yeah. <laughs> He's thinking of himself. Whether it was he himself was pocketing the resources or whether he was simply making friends with maybe those in the community by uh, not enforcing all of his master's bills and debts, and we're going to see him do something similar to that again. Uh, this man, this dishonest manager, does a really, really good job of thinking for himself, thinking about himself, putting himself as the priority and his own gain and his own status. And so this manager summons his master's debtors, and one by one he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Uh, and that's a batos in Greek, if you were wondering, and that's roughly uh, about nine gallons worth of oil. So you think about that, what's, you know, 100 measures of nine gallons, 900 gallons of oil. This is a, a fairly significant debt. This isn't a, you know, this isn't I lent you five bucks last week, now I'd like it back. Um, and probably a significant amount for his, his master as well. And so the dishonest manager says to him, take your bill, Sit down and quickly write 50. And one just kind of grammatical note, and Bud, you probably saw this in the, uh, in the Greek New Testament here, is that the word for bill is just a plural of grammar, which is essentially words. Um, but it's not, he's not saying take the words, take the letters, take the letters, but rather when words are, or letters are put together, what do they make? A document, right? So take your document, take the bill, and slash it in half. And then he says to another debtor, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So the dishonest manager said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly. Oops, sorry, I just said that. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat this time. And he said to him, take down your bill and write 80. Now, if the parable stopped right there, what do you think Jesus would be speaking about? Or what, what do you think maybe even the point would be if we just stopped at verse 7? This is a bad manager. This guy is nothing to emulate. This is not how you want to go about your business. And yet, we are going to read in the next about six verses, Jesus appeared to not only uh, compliment this manager, but even say that in a sense, the children of God should act like this manager. And now I see from the furrowed brows, well, that doesn't seem to make much sense. What do you, how could that be? Uh, and we're going to go through that. But this is why I said this is one of the more difficult, and maybe the most difficult to fully understand parable uh, in the entire New Testament. So verse 8, the master. Now, I want to be clear here. Uh, that master, it's still the master from the parable. The parable's continuing. There are some commentators, I believe that is the master continuing. There's some commentators who take that word master, it's curio, um, it's the same word for Lord, and think maybe this is Jesus commenting then on this parable. I think this is the parable extended. The parable is continuing on. Uh, the master commended this dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now that word is an interesting choice, and I learned this a few weeks ago when I was actually in the foundations class, and we covered this for a, a book series we're doing on difficult sayings of Jesus. Uh, and so I, I, had, I had kind of an unexpected experience with this. I, I took the word shrewd, and I had never really had an inherent negative connotation on it. And I go into the class a couple weeks ago, and I say that, and the first hand goes up and goes, well, how can shrewdness be a good thing? And I thought, well, it, I mean, because it can be a good thing. And I was shocked because about 60 to 80 percent, I'd say, of those in that class thought of the word shrewd or the idea of shrewdness as being an inherently negative thing. That if they were to be told that um, so-and-so is a shrewd individual, they might kind of stay clear of that individual. So I'm curious, just a show of hands, um, and I'll relay it to the radio. Uh, show of hands, how many of you would hear the word shrewd and think of it as inherently negative? All right. All right, this one's closer to 50-50. But still, there's a good number of us um, who hear the word shrewd, and instantly there's a negative connotation. Uh, and in some ways, I think we ought to be careful in our shrewdness because certainly it can be negative. I went and, and did a little research on this uh, word 
and I found it, it's a really interesting Greek word. The root of it is actually um, the word for a diaphragm. Now that seems bizarre, doesn't it? But not when you think about what it came to eventually uh, connotate or, or mean. That it, it denotes an intellectually and emotionally strong involvement into something. Basically your whole being. That you're putting your whole being into this and doing it in a way that is wise or prudent or in this case, shrewd. And I thought, what are some examples then of where the, the root word is then used throughout scriptures? And I came across three, I think, kind of interesting examples. Uh, the first is in Matthew 10, verse 16, where Jesus tells his disciples to be wise, same word here, as wise as serpents, right, and gentle as doves. A second time I thought that was pretty interesting was in the, in the Gospel of Matthew when it talks about building one's house on a rock. And it says there was a wise, or same word, shrewd man who built his house on the rock. But then I saw in the Septuagint, and in case you're unfamiliar, the Septuagint is, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, and so there's, it's interesting to see what uh, the church fathers thought the Greek equivalent of certain Hebrew verses were. And does anyone want to guess the first time this word appears in the Septuagint? I'll give you a clue. You don't have to go far. Genesis. Okay, we're there. Which chapter of Genesis? Yes, Genesis 3, verse 1. And the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Uh, now, in the Septuagint, again, that's the Septuagint. So it's the Hebrew being translated into the Greek. But the church fathers and those in the uh, early first uh, century B.C., A.D., who were translating some of these things um, into the Greek, thought that this would be a good word to describe that sort of craftiness. And why I go back to that is because certainly being shrewd at times can be very negative, right? In this parable, the dishonest manager uses his shrewdness in a way that is not for his master's gain, but for himself. Um, now, there are some who would argue he actually is doing this for his master's gain to make his master well-liked in the community. Uh, I'm going to go through the kind of the three main interpretations and then offer my own at the end of this parable. That is going to be one of them. That the, the reason why he was commended is this actually then won him a great deal of, uh, I guess, goodwill in the community for his master. So the master was happy about this, that he acted so quickly and was merciful to the debtors, which then made the master look good. I don't think that's the point here. Uh, but that is, I do want to be fully honest, there are many people far smarter than I who have concluded that is the, the main point. Uh, of this parable, or at least one of the main interpretations of this parable. So the master commended the dishonest man manager for his shrewdness. And then I think we see Jesus' words uh, to his disciples. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Again, if the parable ended there, it'd actually be a lot easier. We're going to get to the next verse coming up, which is maybe the most confusing verse. But I want to stop and focus on that verse I just read for a moment. What do you think could be meant that the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light? Yeah, bud. Well, first of all, the master is a rich man, the guy in charge this time, is not God. Yeah. When he talks about a rich man, he's not talking about God commending. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, Bud's response for those listening uh, online or on the radio was that the, the rich man is not, in this parable, uh, indicative of God. He's not being commended by God for his shrewdness, but rather someone of the world is commending him for his shrewdness, okay? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the comment, I think that that's also a good comment that uh, children who are not walking in the light of the Lord, all they can rely on is their reason and sort of their worldly wisdom. And so in that sense, they could be better at that than sons of light. And being a, one who walks in the light of Christ is not an excuse to throw out 
all reason and wisdom. And I, I certainly agree with that. Any other thoughts on what, what he might mean by this? Yeah, Lance. Yep. Yeah. So the comment was made that, that they're used to being able to use their reason and their wisdom to get to the ends that they strongly de de uh, desired. And in this case, the dishonest manager, remember I said, who does he look out for? Himself. And so the ends that he's looking for is a way to uh, prop himself up even at further cost to his manager, that he will do whatever it takes to make himself look good. Um, I think, and I will say, like I said, this is something I ha did not find when I was looking at different commentaries to see how people did this, but when I read through this, and I read through, and I've now been thinking about it for three weeks because of what I told you a couple weeks ago with foundations, I think there is something to the fact that when you think about it, uh, in one sense, sinners or heathens, children of the world, are better at being sinners or heathens than Christians are at being Christian for Christ. Does that make any sense? That in a sense, there are those who are so good at living in the worldly ways that they are even better at living in that way than Christians are for the kingdom of Christ. Now, why might that be? Well, for one reason, we're sinners too. Our own hearts are stained with sin. We live in a fallen world. None of us are perfect. None of us have been perfect thus far today. Right? We all confess that we are sinful and unclean. Uh, why else might this be? Well, the ways of the world are very tempting. The ways of the world look really, really good at times, whether it's status, whether it's wealth, um, whether it's worldly success. Those are generally things that people see and think look good. Right? But when you, you start to think about what that then means for the Christian, it kind of takes on a little bit of a, uh, a different understanding because we do not live perfectly. Paul himself says, states his own frustrations, I don't do the things I want to do. The things I want to do so badly, that's not what I do, but the things I don't want to do, they're the very things that I end up doing. Right? And so um, you have this situation where Jesus, I do think in one very profound sense, is saying that this manager was shrewd and that is a compliment, not because of what he accomplished, but because he used his wisdom, his intellect, his emotions, his reason, his senses to get to the desire of his heart. Now, if you think about who's listening, okay, we'll go to Jan and then I'll get to that. So Jan? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, so that, that is an excellent thought that um, essentially, essentially that uh, living in grace as a Christian is, is not to say you, you rely fully on grace. You do 100%. I want to be clear. You 100% rely on grace, but that is then not an excuse to hide behind that in, in, in action, to, to be ignorant of those around you, those who may need your love, your support, your kindness, to hear the proclamation of the word of Christ, right? Um, you know, because we are saved by grace, we are called, therefore, to go out and do the good deeds that God has predestined for us to do. That's the rest of Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10. We sometimes stop at 9. You know, for it is by grace we are saved through faith, not of yourself, but the gift of God so that no one can boast, so that you can go and do the good works that God preordained for you to do. Uh, no, that's an excellent, excellent, excellent thought. Now, who is listening to this? Uh, who are we told at first is listening to this? And I think this is what um, disciples. Now, I'm, we're going to skip ahead just for a few verses because I'm going to get back to nine because nine is still the most difficult verse. So I'm not skipping it entirely. Uh, but look at verse 14 real quick. Uh, 
If you look at verse 14, who's eavesdropping on this conversation? Pharisees. Yeah. Now, of all the things that we can criticize uh, a Pharisee for, what's one thing we have to admit they were extremely uh, adept at? Okay, the law. What else? Shrewdness. Yeah. And where did they focus all of that shrewdness? In the following of the law. That there was no shortage of effort, there was no shortage of ways, there was no shortage of writings, no shortage of things set in place so that they could, quote-unquote, fulfill the entirety of the law. I want you to take a moment and think, if they simply had taken that passion and that zeal, if they had taken their, their ability to work all this out, to get this all straightened out in their minds and straightened out before the world, if they had taken all of that effort and cunning and wisdom and simply placed it into the proclamation of proclaiming who Jesus is, what would have been the result? I think something pretty powerful, right? These were not, and that's why I started by saying this word, um, wasted when it says he was wasting his, his manager's possessions. He's different than the prodigal son. The prodigal son, I dare I say, was a little bit stupid, <laughs> right? He goes and, and gambles it off, or as his brother would say, goes off and, you know, uh, gave it all to prostitutes, right? The prodigal son's a little dumb. This guy's not dumb. This dishonest manager is, in fact, incredibly smart. Likewise, the Pharisees whom Jesus knows are eavesdropping on this conversation, <laughs> they're not dumb guys, <laughs> Many of them were well-versed, well-schooled, well-educated, well-trained, and were pretty good at following the rules that they set for themselves. Uh, and yet, they were using their shrewdness with the wrong end in sight. And that, I think, is the, the commendable part of this dishonest manager. Now, when I was in Foundations, full honesty, this got uh, all sorts of pushback. People were like, no, no, can't be. Um, so if you feel that way, you're not alone, you can commiserate, you can come talk to me afterwards. But I think there is a lot to be said here, that uh, Jesus is commending the wisdom and the cunning and the intellect of this dishonest manager in the parable, while saying at the same time, I know that the ends were wrong, imagine if the ends had been right. Now we're going to get to verse 9, the verse I've been kind of uh, alluding to. Yeah, I'm getting to nine, and then we're getting, I got it. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, there's a couple things to note here. The, the, the they, what is the they? Who is that referring to? There is no shortage of debate. That's not something we're going to be able to solve perfectly right now. <laughs> um, there's all sorts of opinions about what that they could be speaking to. Is it the friends? Um, is it angels? But... All of the answers to that has to bring something from outside of the parable. You kind of have to read something into it that the parable is not necessarily saying. But here's where I do think Jesus has a little bit of irony. Make friends by unrighteous wealth, uh, by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Uh, what is the goal, again, of this dishonest manager? Self-serve, but specifically, how does he need to be self-served? Because he's going to be out on the street. What does he say earlier in verse 4? People will receive me. I, w I need people to receive me into their homes. Uh, where is Jesus then, using the same language, changing the focus of where we are looking? Not into the homes of this world, but into the eternal dwellings. Um, and I think a, a little bit of the irony is that... Um, you know, Jesus is kind of pointing out, it would seem silly for me to say to you, go make friends by unrighteous wealth. But it seems very likely, and is very truthful, that that unrighteous wealth, and those here who have unrighteous wealth, those here who are focused on the worldly things, and I should uh, mention that word wealth is uh, manum, mammon, it's a, a Hebrew word, and, and it's just, it's a money term. Uh, those who have those things, they will eventually cease or fail. But where should our focus be? Where should your focus be, disciples? On the eternal dwellings. So now I'm going to uh, go over kind of the three or maybe 
two and a half main interpretations of this. And you've already heard a little bit of my own interpretation. Uh, but I wanted to, this is a good moment to say, you know, not, not all commentators always agree about everything. Sometimes even you could have two pastors look at the same verse and say, you know, I think this is pointing to two different things. Um, so in, in just good practice, I think it's good to look at how have others taken it. Um, one, uh, one way to take it is that this parable is one of total irony. That he knows the Pharisees are listening, and so he, he, writes, he gives them this parable to basically say, can't you see how ridiculous you all are being? Um, how silly this is, that you think you're going to be able to keep the law and keep it so perfectly. You're actually building for yourself not a kingdom of God, but a kingdom of unrighteous wealth, and it will fail. And so all of this is kind of maybe perhaps ironic. Uh, the second one I mentioned right off the, the start, that uh, there are some who see this as actually he's serving his master by gaining him goodwill in his community. Um, again, I, I've never had a, a, a worker steal from me, but I, I just struggle to think that's the, the, the intent um, of the, and it's, it's not even the stated intent of the dishonest mas manager. He doesn't say so that my master might be happy with me. He's thinking about those who his master's in debt towards and thinking about how he might be able to then work for them be received by them. Um, uh, and then the third one is, this is a statement about essentially not focusing on gaining money. Don't worry about worldly things, focus on heavenly things, and, and just keeping it, it kind of keeps that as the focus. Uh, my own interpretation is that this is about the wisdom and, and the cunning, the shrewdness that God does give to us, but you calls us to use for his glory. And that's where I, in foundations a few weeks ago, when I started saying, be shrewd for God, people are like, you can't. That's a bad term. That's like saying sin for God. <laughs> um, but I, I would contend that, it, you know, when you look at the etymology of the world, word and you look at the, how the word is used, it can be used in a sense that is shrewd in a positive way. So we decided three weeks ago that we were going to stop using the word shrewd and just say wisdom. <laughs> I don't love that, but if that makes, you, makes it any easier on you, Feel free to cross out shrewdness and, and write wisdom or, or uh, you know. But the, it is the wisdom that God has given to us that we so often use to try and get things of our own heart, of our own gain. Imagine if we use that wisdom for the glory of God's kingdom. Imagine if we use those gifts of intellect and, and uh, intelligence and lived, as you mentioned, Jan, not ignorantly, not, not simply behind grace, but actually with grace leading us into the world seeing situations that the, the light of Christ can be proclaimed into, that situations in which uh, this world has made very dark, hopeless, desperate, and yet in Christ there is hope and promise, forgiveness, love, and life. And so that is, to me, I, and again, I did not read that anywhere. That, to me, is actually the point Jesus is making here. But if you disagree, that is okay. You are feel, you know, free to disagree. Oh, do we have one disagreement already? Oh, Okay. Yeah, so that, that, that's kind of that, um, yeah, that you could use what you got, even at times maybe by uh, means that were worldly for the, the benefit of Christ, you know. Uh, and certainly, you should. Not that you should get things unrighteously, but that as God has blessed us in worldly things, whether money, possessions, um, gifts, uh, we should use those for the glory of God's kingdom, whatever measure they've been given to us, right? Uh, yes, Ruth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's kind of that irony concept. That, that, that these, these friends who you have by unrighteous... Yeah. 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 Yeah, and because, of course, the answer is these friends you make by unrighteous wealth, they have nothing to They're about earthly dwellings, earthly things. They're not going to be correct. Yeah, so that's kind of that irony that I was mentioning, or sarcasm. You could say sarcasm. That is, that is one very prominent take. That is how a lot of people, a lot of commentators over the years ha have looked at this, is that it is a, a measure of sarcasm. And I think there is some of that here, but I don't think the commending of the dishonest manager is necessarily sarcasm. And I think that's the big thing that sometimes gets lumped in with that. And that's the difference maybe in how I 
look at this text versus how a lot of um, theologians have looked at it. All right, I know we had another question in the back. Okay. Well, we're going to get there at the end of 16, huh? Yeah. Uh, so the comment is made, well, aren't there two eternal dwellings? And at the, if we, I think we should. But if we get to the rich man and Lazarus, you're going to see that. And you're going to see that um, Abraham says in that parable, there's a great chasm, there's a great divide between uh, those who rest in God's near presence and those who are in Hades. Um, and I don't, looking at the time, I don't know if we're going to get there, but we're going to try. Because I think you're right. I think all of 16 goes together. And I actually think all of 16 goes together with all of 15. You know, sometimes we forget these chapter delineations. These are just uh, our own creations to make things easy to reference and navigate, right? This would have been given consecutively. And it read, it, and you can do this on a, like a Bible gateway, um, or if you have the logo software, any other Bible software or Bible websites, um, read all of 15 and 16 without any uh, verse markers or chapter designations or headings. And it reads a lot differently than if you try and parse it out. Not that those uh, distinctions are bad, they're helpful, right? If I said, turn to the middle of Luke, you'd get there a lot slower. Um, look for this word that starts this sentence, you'd get there a lot slower than if I said Luke 16 verse one. But one of the downsides, unintended downsides to that is that we can sometimes forget the, the whole context of where these words are taking place, that right after the parable of the prodigal son is this parable, right? And right after this parable, we're going to hear um, of the rich man and Lazarus. So now we're going to move on to verse 10. And, and again, this is a little bit what I've stated. But I think the, this and verse uh, 13 really help as being keys to this parable. And by keys, I mean lenses by which you can look at it. You know, uh, if you ever have to grade a test or anything like that, and you had the answer key, it was like multiple choice, and it was just cut out. And so when you look over... You know, you, you slide it over the paper, and when you look out, you have all the... Uh, that's what I think these two verses actually kind of serve as, as a key in that sense, that you can uh, slide this concept over the parable and see where Jesus is pointing the disciples and rebuking the Pharisees all at the same time. So he says in verse 10, One who is faithful in very little also is faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will, will entrust you to the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, what are the two masters present in this parable? God and money. Now here's where, again, there's some of the pushback a few weeks ago came. So what does that then make the rich man akin to? The Lord. Is he God or money? Who should have the servant been serving? His master, right? And so now, all of a sudden, uh, you see a little bit about what Jesus is trying to do. He's taking this worldly concept one where clearly the Pharisees and the disciples have both understood the servant should have been serving his master, and then highlighting how the love of money, how the love of self, how the love of the things of unrighteous wealth, worldly ways, have driven the servant from serving his master. And it didn't matter how much he had been given. You know, it didn't matter how much management he had. He was unfaithful to his master. That if you're going to be faithful to your master, your Lord, be faithful in whatever it is that is given to you, no matter how small, no matter how big. If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And of course, what are the two masters that the, the Pharisees are almost simultaneously serving? Or they would... Uh, who is the master that they try to portray that they are serving? God. In reality, what are they serving? Themselves, their own self-interest, wealth. I mean, you, you, you can fill in the blank there, right? And that's why they respond so negatively when Jesus says certain things. 
partly because it challenges what they've done on the exterior, but also because it challenges what's been done on the interior, where the, the true effort and, and, and desire and love of their heart resides. And that's why I think it is so interesting that this word shrewdness, the original form of it goes back to meaning like a diaphragm, the inner beings. Uh, and in a sense, it's a little bit like uh, the Hebrew concept of nefesh, the, your inward parts, your inner parts. You, you could even say your guts, your intestines, you know. Um, and when you love something in your guts, you really love it. Nothing's going to take you away from that. And it's a reminder as, as Christians where, you know, where should that, that true love and desire be? It should be in our Lord, in our Master, in our Heavenly Father. Uh, in our Savior who came and, and died for us. So then, uh, you know, I was thinking about how does this play out today? How is it, what is this akin to today? And I think when you look out at the church, you see this sadly happen, and it happens so often that perhaps on one hand, people are in church and, and maybe even faithfully, and yet deep down what they desire may not be actually knowing, loving, and holding on to the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul. You know, any poll you do, any poll that's out there that does an anonymous survey, there's regular churchgoers who say they don't actually believe in God. They just like the experience. Okay. Now, it's not a high number. I don't want to scare you all here. But there, there, are, there are those, and even I was reminded of this on Easter, um, you know, those who are regular churchgoers who say this is nice words to live by, but the resurrection is not a literal reality. The Barna Group did a poll about seven or eight years ago. BBC has done some polls um, that basically come to that same conclusion, that even within the church, there are those who externally, it can look like every, all the boxes are checked, but internally, where is the desire of their, their heart? Um, and, and certainly that's a reminder that we need each and every day, and uh, I am reminded, of course, that what is our confession, our prayers, that is not in of ourselves, but create in me, O Lord, a clean heart. That's the prayer of David after he's been confronted uh, with his adultery with Bathsheba. You know, and there, a great sinner, also a great man, knew that the only hope he had came from the Lord his God. All right. Any questions on that parable before we move on to 14? Um, and we, I think we might get through 18 uh, today. So we may not get to the rich man and Lazarus just yet. But All right, Dave. Well, well, good. You, you and I are on the same page. You don't see shrewdness as bad. I think, yeah, maybe it depends what your degree's in. If you've been doing, a, you know, accounting for your whole life, you might, might look at shrewdness as a good thing, right? Or, uh, but no, yeah, I, I personally did not view shrewd as inherently negative. Now, again, I want to be clear, you can be sinful in your shrewdness. Um, and I think one of the reasons why that idea of being shrewd or cunning is so difficult for us to associate just purely with positivity, is to be cunning means what about the recipient of your cunningness? Hmm? Maybe not necessarily suffer, but you're at least smart. The person who's shrewd or is cunning is smarter than the one who's being uh, acted upon. And that's kind of an uncomfortable thing for us to think about <laughs> because no one, likes being, no one likes thinking that they're not as smart as the person next to them. Right? All right. So let's go to 14, and this is, we already kind of jumped at this, so I won't spend too much time, but the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Right? Now what powerful words those are. Those would be difficult words to hear, because who were quite frankly, well-exalted amongst at least the Jewish people. The Pharisees. These were the guys to uh, exemplify, to look at, you know, look to emulate. These were the guys that, you know, and they had no problem telling you that they were those guys too, right? And yet, here Jesus calls them out and calls them out very directly that you justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. 
or is, and I, I want to be clear here, that's kind of a weird phrasing at the end, and it's a kind of an odd phrase in the Greek. Does anyone have like a little note in their Bible next to it where it says an alternative translation? If you have the Lutheran Study Bible, you probably do. Yeah, what's it? Yeah, could you read it for us? Yeah. Yeah, so the Pharisees not only abused God's word, but abused, or the people of God at times have abused the prophets, and they even had abused or gone after John's own way. Um, but that wasn't quite, it was more of a grammatical note. And essentially what it is, is it can be translated to under, be something like, they are urged forcefully or powerfully urged into this kingdom. So this is talking about the wrong teaching of the Pharisees. Uh, no, so when he says the... Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. I think you could read that as, as everyone uh, is urged strongly into it. That this proclamation is a forceful proclamation. Uh, yeah, it is a little bit. Um, but then the next word is interesting. The next verse. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, why is this interesting? Because even amongst the Pharisees, they would admit there had been times where they hadn't kept every single dot of the law. They may be there now in their own minds, but there are also all sorts of little excuses, little things that they could do um, to kind of get themselves out of a, a mess. Or in other words, be shrewd about the law, be cunning about the law, so it looked like or appeared like they followed it perfectly. And, and what does Jesus say? It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And now I definitely want to hit verse 18 because now we get a total curveball. This doesn't seem to make any sense because randomly, after all of this, and in between the rich man and Lazarus, after he's talking to the Pharisees, Jesus is still talking to the Pharisees and just throws this nugget out there. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It's one of those moments, if you looked at it by itself, you'd think, what in the world is going on? Was this like Matthew just needed to insert this somewhere, and, you know, there was a little text on the page left, a little space between the sections, and he decided to write it in? No. Um, was this, you know, Matthew just wanting to make a quick, or Matthew, sorry, Luke, wanting to make a quick comment on uh, marital relations in the midst of these parables? Maybe, but I don't think that's necessarily it either. In the Old Testament, what was idolatry uh, analogous with? If you think about Jeremiah 31, Hosea, Israel's unfaithfulness. Now that doesn't mean what Luke says here doesn't apply necessarily. Now I, we can, it will be a can of worms and I'm not going to get into it in 10 minutes. Um, doesn't apply in some regard to marriage and I will share in about five minutes two schools of rabbinic thought at the time that may lead to him saying such a thing because the Pharisees were, uh, in some ways, if you went to one school of uh, thought, you were kind of making, like I said, excuses or, or removing things um, from the law. But the Old Testament metaphor of adultery when compared to Israel is always about their idolatry. Think of Hosea. Think of Jeremiah 31. Uh, you know, God says all the time, these people, though I was their faithful husband, they were adulterous to me. The whole account of Hosea is about God taking back adulterous people. Think about um, how many times uh, the metaphor of, of a wedding is used to describe God's relationship with his people. And then even to describe Christ's relationship with the church in the New Testament after this, right? And so there is something to the, the effect that what he is pointing them to is a reminder. They would have known this Old Testament metaphor well. A reminder that in his estimation, they have done what? Who have they remarried? Not God, but the, the law. Their understanding of the law, their understanding of what God has done. And, um, and there's a commentator named L.T. Johnson, he writes in his Luke commentary that at the time that the rabbis had two main views, especially when it came to divorce uh, and what was 
permissible or not permissible. And here's why this is important. There's one school of thought, the Shammai school of thought, that sounds more like what we're used to. Divorce was permissible but only in cases of uh, sexual immorality, when there was a, an adulterous affair. But there was a second school of thought, the Hillel school of thought, that said a man could divorce his wife, was permitted to divorce his wife for any reason necessary, uh, including simply finding the other woman more attractive. Now, this is, again, this is a commentator's theory, but you could imagine that there may be some Pharisees, even listening, who were of that second school of thought, may have even been remarried, and may have been trying to say, well, I'm just before men. And so if you think about it in that sense, these words are an absolute haymaker. Now, that takes a lot of, of context and reading into it, and certainly, um, you know, that's not necessarily something we can cover fully in the, in the last five minutes of, of this class. But, uh, you know, I've often thought this seems like one of those texts that's just odd, because it doesn't have anything to do with what's before or what's after it, unless you look at it in terms of the metaphor that the Pharisees would have known and, and associated with and understand, understood the, the cultural context that there may have been those even in that crowd that were of that second school of thought and, well, whether acting upon it or not, at least held that sort of opinion. Um, so that is through verse 18. Are there any questions? Yes, Ruth. Yes. Where they may have been, yeah, fudging it a little bit. Right, you're exactly right. That I, I think it is both. That he is not only intentionally pointing out this well-known, um, I guess, uh, relation between the concept of adultery and idolatry in the Old Testament, but is also maybe even looking at a contemporary situation in which uh, this so-called just and righteous people were living in ways that were completely unjust and were, I like how you put it, fudging it a little bit. <laughs> they're, 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 they're making some changes to the, to the law to suit their own, uh, their, their own means. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. That's actually a good thought, that they're making an excuse ahead of time because perhaps the other person was divorced or God had maybe been silent. We have not heard from a prophet in a long time, right? Um, which is why I think it's also interesting that Jesus points out John because he's like, well, you guys didn't listen. <laughs> There's been a guy, uh, you know. All right. Um, well, are there any other? Well, we'll start with the rich man and Lazarus next weekend. Uh, next weekend, of course, is Mother's Day weekend, so a very special weekend again. We'll, we will have our photo uh, zone over in the, the west uh, lobby, so you may have remembered that from last year, but if you want a photo with uh, mom or grandkids or maybe even your grad or recent confirmand, we will have that set up uh, next weekend. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say it was also a, a very wonderful week because after seven years of being here in St. Louis, uh, the Angels finally came to St. Louis and played a three-game series against the Cardinals, and I have to say, it felt very nice to get a sweep. Uh, so, all that grief you guys have given me over the course of the last seven years about how I'll never be a Cardinals fan, well, at least for one three-day stretch, it was a really nice thing to be an Angels fan. So, yeah, <laughs> crucify him? Yeah, thanks, bud. Crucify him. Uh, famous last words, right? Uh, all right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that in your great love for us and your great care for us, you have given us many gifts. I pray that you would allow us to use those wisely, that we would be uh, intelligent in how we seek to serve your kingdom, that we would seek those who may not have heard the good news of Jesus, seek those who have rejected that news before and need to hear it again, that we would stay humble in remembering our own sin and need for grace, mercy, our own need for our Savior, Jesus. I pray that you would keep us in this humility, keep us in this faith, until we may see you again face to face. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.